0: Lord, this morning, as Your Word is proclaimed to us, we pray that You would jog our memories, that You would return our affections to the root and the cause of our salvation, to the purpose and the plan that our Father executed in the fullness of time, to the champion of our hope, Jesus Christ, who conquered death and the grave in His resurrection and ascension. And I pray that all of these things would be applied to our hearts by the activity of the Holy Spirit, using the means of His Word and these truths that we have sung, and the gathering, the assembly of your people, and the uh, table that is spread before us today representing the purchase price of our salvation. Would you use all these things, Lord, to impress upon our souls, our consciousness, and work out by way of application in our lives, Lord, the great glories of your name and the great work of your salvation. We thank You, Father, that You have redeemed us. You have called us out of Egypt, the Egypt of our sin, unto the promises of new life in Christ. We thank You, Lord, that You have saved us from the wicked one and You have established us in the, and among Your people, O oh God. We thank You, Lord Jesus, for these things and pray that You would root us and ground us even more firmly in our faith as a result of Your Word proclaimed this day. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise the Lord. This morning we have the honor and privilege of opening up the Scriptures together to behold the Lord's holy word. Would you turn with me today to Galatians chapter 4? The first Sunday of the month is our Communion Sunday, as you know, and we've been studying the book of Galatians. The book of Galatians has much to say about the gospel, and there's a foil provided for Paul providentially in that there were alternative truths, or alternative ways of salvation that were being proclaimed and added, as it were, to the faithful testimony, and thus corrupting it, such that what was proclaimed in Galatia was no gospel at all. No true gospel, that is. In fact, it was something foolish, something wicked. Paul exclaims in Galatians 3, 1, "O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? He later says that this faith that they had altered or adjusted in some even seemingly small way, was threatened by the heresy, by the error that was proclaimed from the pulpits in Galatia. He says, But the law is not of faith, in verse 12, chapter 3, The one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Curses everyone who is hanged on a tree. This is one of those exclamations in Paul's writing. That returns the attention of the hearers, whose ears have been opened by the Holy Spirit, to the uh, to the absolute foundation, to the root and core of their faith. The proclamation of the gospel. We have another section where Paul does the same in our text today, in Galatians four one through seven, and most specifically in verses four through seven. Here Paul returns us to the essence of the faith, and underscores its importance. And he does so as a polemic. That is as an argument against anything that would say otherwise, any claim to the contrary. This morning, the title of our message is Slaves versus Sons. Slaves is what we were in one sense before the incarnation. Sons is who we are because of the work of Jesus Christ, and this is clear in our text today. The aim of this morning's message is to champion and proclaim the history and the power of God's saving work. To champion and proclaim the history and the power of God's saving work. And that's simply that the aim is simply my attempt to echo what Paul is doing in these verses today. Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word this day? Out of reverence for his infallible truth as I proclaim to you Galatians 4, 1 through 7. Here is the holy word of God. born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the Word of God. You may be seated. Galatians chapter 4 contains two illustrations to emphasize the distinction between justification by faith alone, which is Paul's gospel that he emphasizes over and over again, and that which was preached in error by the heretics in Galatia, works-enhanced or works-enabled salvation. These uh, pictures, these illustrations, analogies, also illuminate the difference, the gospel Uh, fulfilled presents in the experience of the believer. So what has fundamentally changed after Christ has come in the experience of the believer, especially uh, the uh, picture or illustration in our text today, um, slaves or guardians, uh, children under guardianship versus sons, this emphasizes this truth. Our text today expands upon the guardian-child relationship previously mentioned in chapter 3. Note verse 23 and 24, maybe through 26. Now, before faith came, Paul says, we, of course-meaning believers, were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come... We are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. So, this again is reference to this guardian child relationship that Paul is alluding to to help us understand something about the history of salvation and the effectiveness of Christ's work and what it means for us in our experience as believers. This analogy pertains. That is the guardian child relationship analogy that Paul has just laid out. This analogy pertains to two aspects of the law in Scripture. The first is this. Never mind this uh, uh, kind of academic sentence, sounding sentence. We'll explain it. The redemptive historical time signature of the law of Moses. Redemptive historical. That just means the history of redemption, God's salvation plan unfolding through time. Time signature. That just means that there were certain things that had a shelf life in the law. They were fulfillment, or they were a picture of what was to come, but upon the fulfillment of those things, they were rendered obsolete. So this idea in the law relates to this guardian-child relationship. One time, you were under guardians as a child. That would have been a time where the ceremonial law was in effect. But there's a time in the future where you receive the inheritance as sons, A new awakening is available through the proclamation of the kingdom of Jesus Christ and His finished work on Calvary. And so there's a greater understanding, a greater realization, if you will, in history as a result. This concept of this time signature in the law refers especially to the ceremonial aspects of the law of Moses, designed in part to maintain cultural and ethnic distinctions to keep Israel, that is to say, separate from the other nations, to signify something, and also to signify fulfillment, to come. The sacrifices would fall into this category and many of the offerings and so forth. The lamb, the ram that was killed on the Day of Atonement, it was to signify, it was a symbol of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, to come. After the once-for-all sacrifice, the Lamb of God, Christ, has come, then that historical time signature has been met. And the old covenant sacrifices no longer apply because the fulfillment, the fullness has come. These mandates had a shelf life and they had run their course having served their purpose upon the completion of the Messiah, Jesus, life and ministry. Now, listen only the tragically deceived do not realize that these mandates are obsolete in Christ or wish these limitations to remain indefinitely or seek to return to the former state of things. This is huge. It's horrible. Why? Because it is a fundamental, represents a fundamental misunderstanding of the finished work of the once and for all sacrifice, Jesus Christ. The Galatians were tempted to return to a pre-Christ reality, which is to say they didn't understand or appreciate to the degree that they were tempted. They didn't understand or appreciate the meaning, the power, and the sufficiency of the work of Jesus Christ. So let us not be deceived. Let us take these words to heart as well. Now, there's another aspect of the law that this guardian-child relationship illustrates as well. This aspect of the law pertains to its, again, a scholarly term, pedagogical use. That means teaching especially as to children, the basics, the... uh, the very first principles of a thing that would be pedagogy or the pedagogical use of the law. Now, this aspect of the law refers to its use as a demonstration of our sinfulness. We know that we are sinners because God's law lays out His character and holiness. And we also know from the law that there is a declaration of our condemnation for falling short of the glory of God. So, this use of the law is a demonstration of our sinfulness and a declaration of our condemnation, that is, the wrath-deserving condition of sinners, because they have fallen short of the glory of God. In this sense, brothers and sisters, in this sense, we are all born under the law and must be redeemed if we are to be free from the deserving judgments under the law, the deserving judgments of God our sins against Him. If we naively seek salvation by means of our own law-keeping, Paul is clear, reject this teaching, even if it comes from the mouth of angels itself. There is no salvation by means of law-keeping in and of ourselves. If we seek salvation by any other way than Christ alone, by grace through faith alone, we remain under the law's condemning voice which pronounces over us guilty. And if we do not accept Christ as our Savior, we have no access to the grace available through Him and only through Him, available through the cross of Christ alone by which we receive salvation for our sins. Gospel basics today. Let me give you a heading in verse 3 of our text. Listen to what Paul says about the old condition. Under the law, as it were. It says, in the same way, and in the darkness of sin, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Paul is describing two different conditions. One is life subject, enslaved to the elementary principles of the world, and the other condition, the other set of circumstances, is life under, if you will, the elementary principles of the gospel. I believe there's at least four elementary principles of the gospel that Paul lays out for us today, and especially in verses 4 through 6. They are as follows. Number one, the fullness of time. There's a principle in the gospel that He accomplished its work in total in the fullness of time. Secondly, the triune covenant, the Trinity, the fact that God is, a, God is one in three persons There is one God in three persons. The reality of the nature and character of God as triune is a principle of the gospel, or is principally important, you could say, to the gospel. Thirdly, the incarnation of Christ. The incarnation means in flesh. When God the Son, the second person person of the Trinity, took on flesh, stepped into our world, became a man, was born of the Virgin Mary... This was a principle of the gospel. It was a necessary condition for our salvation. And thirdly, the principle of the gospel is the salvation of man himself. And under that, redemption and adoption, Paul features. These are elementary principles of the gospel. If you you understand that they are exclusively true, it will allow you, it will equip you to reject in your discernment anything that would add or subtract or deny these fundamental truths. Number one, elementary principle of the gospel, the fullness of time. Let's consider it a little more in depth. Back to our text today, verse 4, Galatians 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, the fullness of time. Now, each one of these principles you could pair with a whereas before statement in the text. In other words, when the fullness of time came, something changed. But there was a whereas before that, things were different. That's part of the context here as we read. So let's consider what life was like, in part, before the fullness of time. Fullness of time meaning the coming of Christ into this world to accomplish the salvation for our sins. Where uh, Well, what was life like before this? Well, we might as well have been slaves. Uh, Paul says, notice 4 verse 1, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different than a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. That's a, a key phrase. He is a slave, he is under guardians and managers, and then that phrase, until the date set by his Father." The date set by the Father is, uh, by analogy, the fullness of time. And what Paul is saying is that before Christ came, there were promises of the gospel. He also says in another place that men like Abraham were counted righteous by their faith in those promises in the Messiah to come. But what was Abraham? What were the saints of old looking forward to? They were looking for forward to the date set by their Father, where in the fullness of time, what was promised would become a reality. This morning in our worship text, we covered Psalm 2. And there's reference to the fullness of time in the Old Testament in passages like these. In Psalm 2, we read again of the Messiah and His future work. Notice Psalm 2, verse 7, I will tell of the decree, the psalmist writes, the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. This prophecy, today I have begotten you, is referring to the date set by the Father, the fullness of time when Christ would accomplish His work. The apostles recognize this with the coming of Jesus in history. Note Acts thirteen. We don't need to necessarily turn there this morning, but we've covered this in recent weeks in dovetailing with Psalm eighty-nine. Notice what Paul says as he preaches to men of Israel dispersed in this case in Antioch. He says, verse thirty-two: "We bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children." by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second psalm. He refers to that verse we just read, quote, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Paul recognized that the fullness of time had come in Christ Jesus, and the prophecies of old were fulfilled when Christ took on flesh, became a man, and proceeded to accomplish our redemption. This was, if you will, the date Set by our Father, that is God, who perfectly accomplished according to His will and inscrutable wisdom at the correct time in history, everything that was needful for our hope in Christ to be fully realized. There is a sea change in the fortunes of those who believe with the advent of Jesus Christ. For those who believe in Jesus, there is a sea change in their fortunes with the advent of Christ. This is an elementary principle of the gospel, the fullness of time. You might ask, fullness by what measure? In other words, this time was perfect in what way? Or it was full, it was complete in what sense? Uh, Let me submit three ways. First of all, the sovereignty of God. God in His benevolence and in His love, in the fullness of His grace, His character, and His mercy, sovereignly, that is, of His own accord, by His purpose, and plan decreed to save man. What's the most famous, arguably, verse in the Bible these days? John 3, 16, for God so loved the world. Can anyone finish it for me, young people? For God so loved the world. Very good. Thanks, Jaden. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. That second phrase is reference to the fullness of time. God's love, His overflowing nature and character is evident in the giving of the second person of the Trinity and the offering of His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. Christ has come because a sovereign God has demonstrated His love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ was sent in the fullness of time to die for us. So in the sovereign purposes of God... Uh, the fullness of time is realized. Secondly, full by what measure? Prophecy. There were were, uh, predictions, there were prophecies, there was a declaration in days of old of the Messiah, who He would be, how He would arrive, from what lineage, from what region, what He would accomplish, so on and so forth. You'll remember some of these prophecies. Consider Isaiah 53. He was stricken Uh, His visage was, his countenance, that is to say, was so marred, he was unrecognizable by his stripes, by his wounds. The chastisement of our peace was paid for. Just paraphrasing off the top of my head, these were messianic prophecies of Isaiah that were fulfilled in Christ. There were other prophecies, like in Daniel, that has a certain time signature to them. There uh, there There was a foretelling of events that would come, and so... When all of those prophecies were at their fullness, at that specific point in history, Christ stepped onto this globe through the womb of the Virgin Mary and fulfilled what God had planned. Fullness by the measure of God's sovereign purposes, fullness by the measure of His precise prophecies, and thirdly, fullness by measure of His providence. If you look at history, at the time when Jesus came, in God's providence, that is, His ordering all things according to His will, we see some of the following that might indicate uh, in additional reasons why it's amazing Christ came when He did. First of all, pagan salvation attempts had demonstrated their vanity for thousands of years. Man had sought to invent all kinds of religions and there really is nothing new under the sun. Man's attempts to justify or hold out hope for himself today are just a recapitulation of the failed attempts that we see cycling through history all the way up to the time of Christ's arrival. So man's attempts to save himself were proven vain, unequivocally, in God's providence. Secondly, under God's providence, this was a period of relative global peace. God chose in the fullness of time to bless the world with a time of relative peace so that the gospel could go forth under these conditions and reach the far and distant lands that needed to hear that Christ had come. Also, even the language, Koine Greek, was the language of commerce of that day, and one could say not since Babel had communication been possible so widespread throughout the known world. And the best of roads, as far as I can judge, before or since, were laid out in God's providence to carry the apostles all the way to the northern regions of England and Great Britain and all the way east, as history records, into the Asiatic region and so forth. So, by these providential measures, the fullness of time marked the arrival of Jesus Christ. (coughs) Thirdly, under fullness of time, a biblical definition or biblical philosophy of history. What is history, you might ask? That's an interesting question. It seems like it's an easy one to answer until you think about it a little more deeply. This world and the events that happen are absolutely innumerable. Why do we write down certain events in history books to the exclusion of others? The answer to that question will give you our philosophy of history. What ought our philosophy of history be? It should be from the Scriptures. According to the Scriptures, history is, if you will, time measured by the progress of redemption. What is ultimately meaningful in history? It is what takes place in time according to God's plan to reveal Himself and to save for Himself a people. This is the way the Bible is structured. Why does the Bible focus on a handful of people in an obscure corner of the earth, largely nomadic, namely the children of Israel, to the exclusion of the great empires that surrounded them, at least by weight and emphasis? It's because the Bible is not a history of Assyria or Babylon or Great empires that have had widespread influence and have extended and claimed the most of the globe for a period of time. No, that's a philosophy of history that would exalt the plans and the purposes of man. The Bible is about the plans and purposes of God. And so to show forth His glory, He singles out a people weak and few and small and lowly and does wonders through their history and experience to demonstrate His plan for salvation. History is measured by the progress of redemption. We live in an age where people think that's not a very important measure of history. History is better measured by the progress of autonomous man, man seeking to better himself. That is a cynical view of history that will end in utter failure, that will end in God's judgment. Man will never save himself, no matter how many uh, times he tries and his futility, it is a hopeless end. The only hope that remains is the history that is contained for us in the Holy Scriptures that gives us the framework by which to understand God's purposes in this fallen world. The fullness of time is an elementary principle of the gospel. Time is measured by the progress of God's redemption in history when at its fullness, at the arrival of Jesus Christ, things change. Those who were in slavery to sin were now welcomed as heirs and sons, their salvation realized because their debt had been paid in Christ. Secondly, elementary principle of the gospel, the triune covenant. The Bible, said, or, uh, Paul states in Galatians 4.8, whereas formerly, I added that whereas statement, but uh, formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those by nature that by nature are not God's. In other words, the Galatians, as pagan peoples, not having the revelation of God, were once enslaved in their minds. They were crippled in their worldview. Their understanding was darkened. They stumbled around in their deception, not knowing where to turn, where to go, where's a cliff, where's a road, what is hope of moving forward in their experience. Why? Because they were... Uh, they were enslaved to those who were by nature not gods. They served idols. They did not know the one true God. And this one true God is revealed to us in Scripture according to His nature as triune. Notice what we read in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. This is a principle of the gospel, an elementary one, a foundational one. If God was not Three persons in one. Salvation could not be accomplished. There could be no father who would send a son who would be the perfect blameless lamb who would die for our sins. There would be no Holy Spirit to apply this work to our hearts. The nature of God as triune is emphasized in Paul's words for a reason. Because it is essential, foundational, a non-negotiable and whereas those who didn't realize were enslaved to concepts and ideas of God that, will, that were foolhardy and uh, corrupting, now, as Paul preaches the truth, there is opportunity through the Word of God for their minds to be renewed by His Holy Scriptures, by God's self revelation. Later in the same passage, and when you are sons, and because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. So there we have Father, Son, and Spirit. Notice that today, as man as it, as it is in any age, man's ideas about the concept and notions of God are corrupted unless he holds to the self-disclosure, the revelation of God in His Holy Scripture. There is no new and improved scholarly way to discover the meaning of the universe and what to expect and how to better ourselves. There is no path from this darkened world, from this world fallen in sin, up to God. The only pathway is God revealing Himself, condescending, making Himself known to man. And He does so in a triune way through His covenant. Now, a covenant is a basic agreement between two or more parties. And this is implied in our text today. When God sent forth His Son, it implies that there was a willing agreement between the persons of the Trinity. We sometimes call this the covenant of redemption. That is, because God is three in one and because they, the persons of the Godhead are in perfect harmony with one another, Jesus Christ, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, Uh, Yes, fully God, stepped into flesh, became fully man to take on the burden of our sins, and He did so willingly. This is because God, who is unique in this sense, and God alone could accomplish this great work. There are relational implications in the Trinity. God does not need us to be satisfied. He doesn't need our fellowship to be fulfilled. God has perfect uh, fellowship in between the persons of the Trinity and so forth. Nevertheless, it is the Trinity that renders our fellowship with God possible in the first place. The Spirit of His Son, the third person of the Trinity, applies redemption to our hearts. Our scriptures today say that it is the indwelling of this Spirit that makes salvation a reality. Verse 6, Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba father. Now, before you became a believer, or maybe you don't know him today, I don't know the Lord knows your heart, but before you recognized God as your father, Jesus as your savior, and experienced the Holy Spirit awakening those truths to your consciousness, before that happened, the idea of God being a father would have been strange and foreign to you. Maybe even one that you didn't think was a very good analogy at all. None of us have a perfect experience in our family relationships. This is a world fallen and sinful. All of our pasts have been corrupted by the dysfunction of hurtful relationships. And so it is difficult for us sometimes to conceive of God at all because every way He describes Himself in family terms and so forth is corrupted by our past, our experience, so on and so forth. But there is a change that happens in the heart of a believer where suddenly the clouds of our sin... The clouds of our experience, all of the baggage of the dysfunction, the hardship, the trauma and whatever else that we've experienced on this side of the fall, all of that is washed away like windshield wipers on a smog, in a, a smog-filled drive and suddenly you see clearly and your heart cries out in a relational connection of love and appreciation, of dedication and of service, and of glorious thankfulness and praise to the Lord your Father and Christ who has saved you, thankful for the Spirit applying this to you. It's hard to describe because it's something that takes place by a force outside, otherwise outside of our experience. It's like the blind being able to see. It's like the dead coming to life. It's like Lazarus being resurrected. It's like a heart of stone becoming pliable. Like a heart of clay, all these are pictures that the Bible uses to describe the moment when God, the Holy Spirit, awakens our hearts to the reality of a family relationship with God Himself, that way being paved by Christ who died for our sins to adopt us as His own. This is the triune covenant and its effects. The persons of the Trinity that are essentially, elementarily involved, if that's a word, And the gospel, fullness of time, triune covenant. Thirdly, the incarnation of Christ. An elementary principle of the gospel is Christ's incarnation. Notice again in verse 4, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Born of woman and born under the law, two phrases that referred directly to the incarnation of Jesus. Whereas before, in pre-incarnation, man was restricted in some sense. He had a guardian. He had a slave master, if you will, over him. There was this guardian-child relationship between him and the law. This refers to, by the way, uh, something that was fairly common at the time. A slave or an agent serving on behalf of the parents was sometimes... Uh, hired to serve the parent's wishes in taking care of the children. They were like a live-in tutor or a guardian that was responsible for the nurture and the teaching and the well-being of the child. And this is what Paul refers to in this illustration. The law was like that. It served a provisional role, as we said in part, to uh, guard or to keep or to maintain uh, through shadow And through this veiled sense, a hope proclaimed that, it signified that in its sacrificial system, its ceremonies and otherwise, of what was to come. But at the time of the incarnation of Jesus Christ, whereas before things were type and shadow, suddenly they took on form and substance. And this is what we see unfolding in Paul's declaration. We have Christ now born of woman and born under the law. In the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son to fulfill these two things. When Christ was born of woman, God became a man. He took on flesh, and in so doing, He became the second Adam. The first Adam, you recall Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, we're in a Genesis series right now. God held out hope in the tree of life for them, but it was conditional upon their obedience. Um, children, did Adam and Eve obey the covenant? What did they do that was wrong? That's right. They ate the fruit that God told them not to. They ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Good job. And when that happened, could Adam save us? Or was there hope for the children of Adam in and of themselves? Or was this hope lost? this hope was lost. The only hope for man after Adam's fall was if, in the words of Paul in Romans, a second Adam would arise. That is to say, a man must be born who is not corrupted by original sin, who would go forth under the law, satisfy the terms of that covenant, and by that righteousness then be, det- uh, be declared by the Lord, a faithful law keeper, a covenant head, and then that righteousness, through the great exchange that we call it in salvation, be imputed or accounted to us. Now, these are concepts in the gospel that we often go over and, and often reinforce. But they are so important to understand the fundamentals, the elementary principles of the gospel. It was necessary that Christ be born of woman, that Christ be incarnate, that Christ take on flesh. You remember Anna and Simeon in the temple at our kind of Advent series? This year we talked about Jesus as a little one being brought by His parents to the temple. And there He met Anna and Simeon who recognized Him as the Messiah. What was the occasion for Jesus being brought to the temple? It was to fulfill the law. So even from His infancy, according to the prescription in the law of Moses, Jesus was brought to the temple to fulfill God's demands you know, and then he grows up following obediently the Lord until such time as he is baptized. And John says, no, no, John the Baptist, I, I can't baptize you. I have need to be baptized by you. This is all uh, upside down in, in, in my mind. And Jesus says, no, I need to be baptized to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Jesus is going forth. He is uh, fulfilling all the necessary terms and conditions of perfect law-keeping. And then what happens after his baptism? Immediately the Spirit sends him, casts him out, as it were, in the book of Mark, uh, just like uh, that language, or, or, and reminds us of the language of Eden, he goes to be tested. And whereas Adam and Eve were tested and failed, Jesus is tempted in the wilderness. Does he fail the test, or does he pass the test? He passes the test and so by these measures and all of the and everything else that was required Jesus born of a woman becomes a man takes on the office of the second Adam and fulfills God's plan accordingly also as the uh, son of Mary and Joseph as it were Jesus was the davidic son fulfilling the covenant with David as well that we've covered recently in Psalm 89 And as I've just stated, the fact that He was born under the law made it possible for Him to keep the covenant on our behalf. So these are elementary principles of the gospel, fullness of time, triune covenant, incarnation of Christ. And this brings us to our final one this morning, final principle of the gospel, salvation itself, the salvation of man. And there are two primary ideas, two primary concepts under this that Paul emphasizes, First, redemption, and secondly, adoption. But first, but first of all, let's uh, notice in our context a whereas before statement, if you will. Whereas before, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, there's a different uh, experience for us in salvation entirely. Notice verse 3, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. We've covered, we're covering at length the elementary principles of the gospel that Paul outlines. But it does beg the question: What are the elementary principles of the world? Well, he qualifies them to some degree in a few verses. He uses this phrase again in verse nine: "How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles? Of the world. Slaves, you want to be once more. You observe days and months and seasons." and years." In summary, perhaps we could say this, what does it mean to be enslaved to elementary principles? Elementary principles are the inescapable post-fall realities outside of the gospel. What is life after the fall without the gospel? This would be the elementary principles of the world. They would include the demands of the law by virtue of God's holiness and providence, And they would include the darkness of sin by virtue of man's nature. Those are the elementary principles. That is our experience. That is life outside the gospel. Without the gospel, we are judged falling short, immeasurably short of the holiness that a righteous God requires. And we must be punished. We cannot stand in His presence. We cannot share communion with Him without a fundamental change. Without the elementary principles of the gospel, we are enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And those principles are the reality that the law condemns us and, the, and uh, to judgment worthy of our sin, and also that we are darkened in our understanding and our experience because of sin by virtue of our corrupt human nature. So whereas before we were enslaved to these things, now something has changed. We are saved, praise the Lord. Notice in verse 6, And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son, and if a son, then an heir through God. Now this great promise and realization of the change in our circumstances because of the gospel is preceded by verse 5. To redeem those, so Christ came, he was born under the law, born of woman, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. Two great works that Christ accomplished in our salvation, redemption and adoption. What do those mean? Well, both of these refer to practices at the time, and there are things that we can understand. Uh, Redemption was a purchase price for a slave. If someone owned a slave this was true in Jewish times, ancient as well as contemporary Roman times when Paul was writing if someone owned a slave, there was a purchase price often that was set for that slave. There was amount of money the owner would receive in exchange for the slave's freedom. This would be the redemption price, the purchase price. That sum of money, in exchange for that slave would release him from his obligation, from his captivity, from his uh, enslavement to his master, and he would be a free man. What is the purchase price, brothers and sisters, of our redemption? If we were slaves to the elementary principles of the world, what did it cost to set us free? Young people, does anyone know? What is the cost of our redemption? Turn with me to 1 Peter 1 while you're thinking. Does anyone know? What is the cost of our redemption? I'll give you a hint. Notice, I'm gesturing to the communion table right in front of me. Anyone have any idea? What did it cost to buy us from out of slavery, as it were? Who said that? Who said something? Jesus died on the cross. Did I hear something else in the back? No? Yes? Yes, Eliza. Uh, His bl- blood, did I hear, on the cross? Awesome. Well, let's see if Liza and uh, Bill are on the right track here. This is 1 Peter 1, verse 17. And if you call on Him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed. That's that same concept. You were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, not with perishable things, such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for your sake. Do you notice how uh, Peter here, another apostle, emphasizes all the elementary principles of the gospel that we have covered in Galatians 4, in these last times, the fullness of time, triune covenant as a father who judges impartially, sending Christ, Uh, the incarnation of Christ, the fact that him in his flesh can be crucified for our sins, and then the salvation, redemption, which Peter lists or Peter references by using the same kind of language. We were ransomed. We were purchased. That is to say, there was a redemption of us from our captors, inherited, which Peter describes as feudal ways, inherited from your forefathers, not with with perishable things such as silver and gold. In other words, no amount of silver, gold, or riches, no amount of material possessions, nothing that you could quantify tangibly in your experience would be a sufficient price to buy you out of slavery to sin. But there is a sufficient price. What is it? Liza was correct. Bell was correct. It is the precious blood of Jesus Christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. The blood that Jesus shed on the cross. This is sufficient payment to purchase us from slavery to the elementary principles of the world. What changes after this uh, transaction, if you will, happens? When the Lord sparks regeneration in your heart, when you are born again, When Christ's blood is offered as the substitute, the purchase price, the ransom payment to deliver you from slavery to sin, what is different about you now? What has changed about your your circumstance, about your condition? Well, this is where adoption comes in. Christ redeems those who are under the law so that they might receive what? Verse 5, Galatians 4, adoption as sons. And because you're sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. The title of this morning's message, Slaves versus Sons. We were once a slave, we are now a son. Why? Because the purchase price was paid to not only buy us out of slavery so that you can just go and be a free man, but indeed to adopt us into a family relationship with God the Father. Praise the Lord. Praise His holy name. Adoption was also a practice that was common at the time. You're familiar with adoption. We know something about it in our experience today. There was provision, but a little bit more particularly, in Roman law, there was provision at the time to adopt a son for purposes of designating him, designating him as the heir to all the family's wealth. Let's say that there was a a set of parents who didn't have a child, for instance, but they wanted their legacy to continue. Uh, Under those conditions, it was commonplace that they would adopt an heir who would take on everything of that family's identity and name for the purposes of being called their own and also being the beneficiary of their great estate. All their wealth would be granted, would be given to that heir. This is the picture of adoption that we see here. And then some. We who were once lost, fatherless as it were, without hope, without God in this world, abandoned, slaves, wretches, we have been adopted, called out of slavery unto sin, and set in a family relationship with the Lord, with God Almighty. So much so that after this change of heart happens, we cry two, two phrases, both meaning Father. Abba, Father. One is in Aramaic, Abba means like daddy or uh, an affectionate term for a father. A father, pater, in the Greek, uh, meaning progenitor. And so in the Greek and in a language the Jews might better understand, like Hebrew or closely related Aramaic, Abba, father. This is the heart cry of those whose lives have been changed through salvation. They have now been adopted. And because of their adoption, we are now heirs. So that you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What is our inheritance? Paul has already gone into this to some degree. But it is what was promised to Abraham. If you are Christ, 329, then you are Abraham's offspring. Heirs according to promise. Everything that God has promised according to His covenant. In the long line of forefathers who've gone before. The promises to Adam. That the seed of the woman would crush the serpent's head. The promises to Abraham that, they, that he would join a great nation. Too many to count. People called out from among the nations to the praise of the Lord's great name. And this would happen through his lineage in the future. The promises to David that he would enjoy a kingdom, a lineage, a rule that would never end. The promises of salvation, freedom from our sin that Isaiah proclaimed in chapter 53, and so on and so forth, to the patriarchs, to the prophets, to the authors of Scripture, from all the way through, from Adam and Eve to the fullness of time, what was promised is ours in Christ. That is our inheritance. Through Jesus Christ our Lord, we have received redemption from sin and adoption into the family of God and the inheritance of the estate of Jesus Christ our Lord, yes, indeed, we will experience heaven in all its glories, the new heaven and new Earth ruling and reigning with Christ, because of these elementary principles of the gospel, of the gospel, no longer slaves but sons. Praise the Lord. Let us transition in prayer. O oh Lord, we thank you for the promises of Scripture for the reality of the gospel, that it is absolutely assured in Christ our Lord, and it has been sealed upon our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit to effect this change. If there are any listening to this sermon today who have not received Christ as their Lord and Savior, would you use the proclamation of your word to draw them out of darkness into light? Lord, I pray that they would see at this table today the symbol symbolized, represented, the price of their redemption, the shed blood, the broken body of Jesus Christ, the only way that our sins can be atoned for, our sins can be paid for, and we can become heirs of His great promises and blessing. Lord, I pray that You would root us and ground us in these truths, that You would equip us to share them with others, that You would write them, Lord, even more deeply upon the tables of our hearts as we partake in communion this day. In Jesus' name, amen.